The sermon text for tonight is Luke 5, 27 to 32. Luke chapter 5, verses 27 to 32. Read with me. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Thanks, Scott. Can you guys hear me? Can I get thumbs up if you can hear me? All right. Awesome. Well, uh, family, I want to invite you to grab a Bible, a physical one if possible. So as we go over God's word today, you can follow along and see the connections with me. I think that would be one way to kind of bridge some of the awkwardness and the gap that we have um, distance. So if you're at home, you probably have a Bible or several. Uh, Please grab one if you can. Like Scott just read, we'll be in Luke chapter five, but I want to refer to Luke chapter four quickly um, because a couple of weeks ago when I preached on Jesus's authority, I wanted to show that In Luke chapter 4, verse 18, Jesus makes this huge announcement. It's spiritual, it's physical, it's political, it it transcends every kind of sphere you can imagine. And one of the things that we have to ask ourselves is, is is Jesus like the politicians of his day and the politicians of our day, where he over-promises and under-delivers? He he says the most beautiful sounding uh, um, things and, and, and presents such a picturesque idea of what his kingdom would be like, but could he actually do such a thing? And so in my text, a couple of weeks ago, I showed you that he actually does have authority over every sphere of life that no man can tame. And he has absolute authority over sickness and over demonic forces that wage against us. So today we're going to take a little turn and focus not just on his authority, but more on who makes up this kingdom that he's bringing, this glorious kingdom that he's bringing to the earth and that he will one day bring fully to bear, who makes up his kingdom? Who does he pursue to fill and populate his kingdom? So that's kind of where we're heading today. And it's delightful. It is so glorious. I preached on this text at the BCS chapel. And as I re-prepped over it this week, I saw even more glorious things in this text. So let me tell you where where we're going if you're note-taking or if you kind of want to put it in your head where we're heading today. So first, we're going to go and look at the context leading right up to our passage in chapter 5. And then, but after that, we're going to see Jesus's pursuit and calling of Levi. Then we're going to see Levi's response to Jesus and following of him. Then we're going to see the religious leaders' shock and grumbling of Jesus's acceptance of Levi and his friends at this table fellowship. That's what I call the scandalous feast. And then finally, we're going to try to make a few implications and applications to our life. And how should we now live in light of this insane, beautiful text? All right, so let's look quickly at the context, and then we'll get to the heart of the passage. 
So before we get to verse 27, look at just the headings of your Bible. If you do have a Bible with you, if you just look at the headings after chapter four, verse 18 and following, you're going to see that Jesus is pursuing people that nobody else would pursue. He's healing those that no one else can heal. He's touching that those that nobody else wants to touch. So look, Jesus heals many. Jesus heals a man with an unclean demon. Jesus preaches in synagogues and he's going out to all these different kinds of people, not just one group, but all kinds of people. Jesus calls in chapter five, a bunch of disciples who are nobodies that nobody would ever expect to be anything. Jesus cleanses a leper. Jesus heals a paralytic. You're just seeing over and over again, Jesus is not moving towards the rich and powerful to populate his kingdom. He's actually moving towards the opposite. He's moving to the rejects of society, the poor, the pitiful, the blind, the lame, physically lame, and in a colloquial way, those who we would be calling lame. Like he, he's going after those that nobody would ever think twice or look twice at, those that every society throughout history ignores. And so now let's look at this calling of Levi in verse 27, chapter 5, verse 27. And just a reminder, in other gospels, we see that this Levi is Matthew. That's his other name. And so let's see Jesus' calling of Levi. Look at verse 27 with me. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. First of all, let me direct you to the actions of Jesus right here. He's not just randomly going around and then sees Levi. If you look at the text, it actually suggests more of an intentional pursuit of Levi. And he knew who Levi was. He was at a tax, uh, tax booth. He's not mistaken about this guy, his reputation, what he may be about. And yet he pursues him. He sees him. It's an it's a intentional looking. And then he says, follow me. Now, before we get into this command to follow him, let's talk about who Levi is. He's a tax collector. And if you've been in church um, any number of years, you've probably heard that tax collectors were not everybody's favorite person. Now, in our age, we have a kind of playful hatred of the IRS, right? People would just kind of playfully talk about how much we hate the IRS, but their hatred in Jesus's context was not like our hatred. Their hatred was real. It was strong. And there was good reason behind it. Let, let me give you some background. Now, what tax collectors would often do that would um, stir up people to hate them would be they would take a little off the top. So th if they were asked to take a certain amount from the people, they would take a little bit extra to line their pockets. And, and I'm not just saying that because I've read, read historical um, context books, but actually we can see that in the text. So if you have your Bible, just flip the other direction to Luke chapter three. Luke chapter three, verse 12. John the Baptist is, is baptizing people and different kinds of people like soldiers and tax collectors are coming to him and asking, what do I do to be uh, baptized? What should I do? And he says this in verse 12. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Why would he say such a thing? Well, because they were known for taking more off the top. And so Jesus is calling them out and saying, hey, uh, uh, Jesus knows that. 
just like everybody else knows that. And so I just wanted to show an example how sometimes you'll hear preachers and authors say, hey, this is a reality about this kind of person, or this is what happened in this context. And they'll refer to some author outside of the Bible. And that's good and well. However, a lot of times it's just a Bible study tip. A lot of times you can actually see these very realities if you look harder enough at the text. So that's just one little free point. But secondly, and more importantly, let's talk about why they were so upset at tax collectors. Well, one of the greatest hopes for Jews was for them to have their own land. That, that is also a reality today for ethnic Jews and the state of Israel. They wanted the stinking Romans to stop oppressing them and get them off of their land. And so that's the great dream for every Jew. We want a kingdom to ourselves without anyone occupying and oppressing us. And so what the tax collectors were, were they were native Jews who worked for the enemy in order to collect taxes for the enemy and for the oppression, further the oppression. And they would line up their pockets and take a little, a little extra and get rich why they did it. You see how despicable this is? If we want to bring this home to our own context, imagine if during this whole pandemic, our nation is weakened, which it is in, in, in many senses, we're weakened and some other country comes and swoops over and takes over our country. We're under this rule of this, this country. I'm not going to use any examples lest I uh, unintentionally offend anyone. And, and this country is ruling over us and they say, hey, we need to collect taxes from these people and let's collect taxes at exorbitant amount. And imagine me saying, hey, I... You know, this is just the reality in our country. I need to take care of my family and tax collecting is good business. So I volunteer and I volunteer and I go to this country and say, hey, I will collect taxes for you. So I'm collecting taxes for the other nation and stealing from my own countrymen, my own people to benefit the oppressor and line my own pockets. Do you see how crazy this is? The hatred the Jews had was understandable, was it not? Not justifiable, but understandable nonetheless. And earlier in chapter five, we see Jesus called the disciples and one of the disciples is Peter. And you can imagine Peter, as you know, Peter was a talker. Whatever he thought came out of his mouth, kind of like me. And, and I'm growing from that by God's grace. And you can imagine Jesus going up to Levi in this public arena. And everyone knows what, this, what Levi's about, or at least they think they know what he's about. And you can imagine Peter grabbing his the other disciples. Hey, 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 bro, bro, check it out. Jesus is going to rip this guy a new one. This guy, he's going to kill this guy. He's going to tell them, uh, give him a piece of his mind and show him what a traitor he is. Check this out. Check this out. And you can just see and imagine Peter's jaw dropping to the ground as he sees not Jesus condemning Levi, nor even just being courteous and being kind and waving at him or, or even forgiving him. He takes a crazy step and invites him to follow him. Invites him to join his merry band of revolutionaries. Can you imagine the insanity of the, the whole marketplace that they're, they're seeing this scene unfold? Can you imagine how crazy this would be for them? Think about this. If you were to start a worldwide revolution to change the world, who would you want to fill up your bench? What would be your dream all-star team to fill up your bench? Would it be a known, despised, hated by all person? 
that, that would make sense. And yet that's what Jesus does. He pursues the opposite of our expectations. And throughout the gospel of Luke, we see that over and over again, this upside down reality that Jesus pursues those that who we would never pursue. And, and so let's look at Jesus, uh, Levi's response to this call to follow Jesus. And we're going to talk about that term, follow Jesus a little more. All right, verse 28. If you guys have your Bible, we're back in chapter five, verse 28. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. He rose and followed him. Let's look at this phrase carefully. My sense when I read this phrase, especially when I read it in Greek, is, is that there's something here that's, that's, that's just begging for us to look at closely. Um, look at this kind of order. First of all, he leaves everything which is kind of like a spiritual reality of dying to self, death. This word, he rose or uh, he, he rose. This is the same word for resurrection in the Bible. The same word in this thing is resurrection. So he leaves everything behind. He rises and he follows the one who has the very words of life. You see, this is, you kind of see born again reality, the whole Christian life right here in this one little quick phrase. Do you see, are you tracking with me? Levi leaves everything behind. He rises up resurrection and follows Jesus to have life. This is a a very beautiful thing. So Levi is demonstrating outwardly something that spiritually happened on the inside. And I just want to highlight something that's very obvious for many, if you read your Bible carefully, but very easily forgotten by all of us. Jesus calls him to follow him. He doesn't say merely join my club or come to the synagogues on every Sunday or, or, or Saturday, excuse me, or, or believe in me. Those are all important things that are true throughout the scriptures. But he says, follow me. So that means if you are following Jesus, that he is doing the leading and you're doing the following. And so often, uh, as all of you guys have seen throughout our country, especially, we have this soft Christianity where it's more like we're doing the leading. Jesus is straggling behind us and we're just asking him like some cosmic genie to bless all of our leadership, all of our decisions, all of other things that we fall into. We have the order swapped. And so if you're following Jesus, people should be able to tell that you're following someone else. And it's not you, the one who's doing the leading. This is the basic framework for all Christianity. We die to all the things that we hold dear, all the things that we're finding security in, all the things that we're finding our purpose and hope in. And we're saying, Jesus, you are all of those things and more. And I'm leaving that behind so I can follow you. And we experience resurrection in this age and further and fully in the age to come. This text says, leaving everything. Let me just make that a quick side note, leaving everything. This does not mean that he left all of his possessions because in the next verse, we see that he's hosting a great banquet at his house. So he still kept his property, at least in the short term, and he still had some money. But what this shows us is that this is a spiritual leaving. In verse 32, which is the very purpose verse of this whole section, the the highlight text for this whole section, we see that what Jesus is after is a spiritual reality that usually has physical 
realities attached to it, physical elements attached to it. And it's important to know that even though he may have not left all of his physical um, possessions behind, all of his physical possessions are now commandeered to Jesus. Uh, Not in a forceful way, but a willing way. He has given to Jesus all that he has. And so they're no longer his. And so in one sense, even though he may physically have stewardship or possession of those things, he no longer has possession of those realities in his heart. He has given them over to Jesus. He's given over the keys to his house, the keys to his career, the keys to his heart. Levi is leaving a corrupt job in a position of wealth for someone way better, for something way better, for something that lasts forever, which is a great reality for us to take joy in because lots of us are losing things left and right that are temporary, but nothing has been taken from us that is eternal. Now let's look at this feast. Jesus um, is invited to this feast. Levi is, is so happy and he wants all of his friends to meet him. So let's look at this crazy scandalous feast. We're back in verse 29. Verse 29. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with him. So the text here suggests to me that Levi's probably best friends are other tax collectors and other rejects, which if, if you have lived any bit of life, you've probably seen that those who are rejected by society typically commensurate with each other. They, they, they bond together because they have a shared common rejection and that unifies them. And so he is bringing his friends to his table and inviting Jesus to meet him. Hey, this is the guy who just saved me. He's transformed me. I want you to meet him. What is really unique and sweet is that Jesus has been doing a lot of his ministry at synagogues, but the very people that he's about to reach and connect with at this table, at Levi's table, are people that typically wouldn't have not received his ministry or heard his words. Because these people would typically have been excommunicated from the local synagogues. And so Levi is this powerful person of peace, if you understand that frame, uh, understand that phraseology, and he's inviting people at his table who would never hear the gospel to be able to meet the one who's just changed his life. But Jesus, being at this table, we cannot overstate how insane and what a statement Jesus is making. Let me read to you a quote from Dr. Scott Barchi. What a fun name. And he is writing in a dictionary on Jesus's ministry, specifically um, the context of, of, of meals, meals in Jesus's day. Okay, let me, uh, that was complicated. Th- hear about this. Listen. It would be difficult to overestimate the importance of table fellowship for the culture of the Mediterranean basin in the first century of our era. Mealtimes were far more than occasions for individuals to merely just eat food and consume uh, nourishment. Being welcomed at a table for the purpose of eating food with another person had become a ceremony richly symbolic of, listen, three things, friendship, intimacy, and unity friendship intimacy and unity so if you're like man why are the pharisees so judgy why are they having an issue with jesus dining at levi's table well 
if you understand the historical context we just tried to talk about, we're seeing that Jesus is extending friendship, unity, acceptance, intimacy to these rejects, to these traitors of Israel. So you can see the, um, the, the amount of mind-blowingness of this, these actions of Jesus. Now, I just changed the setting on my earphones, so perhaps I'm going to speak lower because I may have been just just destroying your speakers in your ears. So I apologize if I did that to you. So you may have to make another adjustment. Think about the insanity of Jesus's actions. He is extending fellowship, intimacy, and unity to the rejects and more importantly, the rebels and the traitors of his society. Now, let me shift gears a little bit. Imagine this scene. Jesus is sitting at the table with these rejects. And I want to ask you, if you could even close your eyes, if you'd be willing to do that, um, you're safe at your home probably. Um, What is Jesus like at this table? What is his face like? Is he smiling or scowling? How is he relating to these sinners sitting around him? Is Jesus making it utterly clear to all those around to make sure they know that if anyone's watching in, hey, I don't belong here. These are not my people. I don't condone their sinful behaviors and their treachery. See, I think that if we read our Bibles carefully, you can open your eyes. I think we can understand what Jesus would have been like. See, what Jesus did here was not an isolated event. If you read throughout the gospel of Luke, Jesus dines at tables many times. Look at Luke chapter 7 if you have a Bible. Flip over to Luke 7, 34. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking. And you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So in here, you see that he's accused of basically partying with sinners and he's a friend of them. Look at chapter 15, Luke chapter 15, verse one. Luke 15, verse one and two. Now tax collectors, you can, if you wanted to, you could just kind of put a circle around tax collector and put on top of it, traitors of Israel and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees said to, uh, and the scribes grumbled saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Okay. So you can go back to chapter five because of these passages and other passages like it. And because of my personal interaction with Jesus, my understanding, my imagination has Jesus smiling at this table. I can see Jesus filling up the room with warmth. Now, I'm not saying that he doesn't know and he's ignoring their sin and anything wicked they've done, but he was able to see that they were still made in the image of God, even though many Jews forgot that that was the case, and exude a sense of love and acceptance, so much so that the outside viewer accused them of being their friend. And you know what? Jesus was their friend, and Jesus did receive them, and he ate with them. I think that's very powerful to know because sometimes we can have this mindset is that if you truly love the lost 
and sit among them and receive them. You have to make sure everyone knows that you don't condone their behavior and then you're not about what they do. Jesus was able to call them out and we'll see this later on verse 32, call them to repentance and yet let them know that he rich deeply and with great affection, affection, love them. So the scene changes. We're back in chapter five, verse 30. The scene changes and the Pharisees are speaking to Jesus and his, Jesus's disciples. So we'll do, look at verse 30 with me. Chapter five, verse 30. And the Pharisees and their, and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Notice the verse before Luke calls these people uh, tax collectors and others. So, so the, the Pharisees are replacing that word others with sinners. And so they're, they're imputing their, their standing before God. They're sinners. Jesus hears about this grumbling and he responds. And so this is the section of the passage that I'm calling the great physician, if you're taking notes. And he responds and gives one of the greatest purpose statements of his mission, his purpose in Luke. And one of the greatest passages in the Bible. If you look at verse 31, chapter five, verse 31. And Jesus answered them. This is what he says. Those who are well have no need of a a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. This is a beautiful, beautiful passage. And it's very simple. Even a child can understand this logic. If any children or teenagers, if you're listening, you can understand the logic, right? Right now, there's a pandemic and there's only so many medical professionals. And how um, idiotic and insane would it be is if we took all the medical professionals, all the physicians, and then we focus them to go to the places where there's no known cases of COVID-19. Wouldn't that be insanity? That's the basic logic of this text right here that Jesus is using. You don't send doctors to the healthy. You send them to the sick. And Jesus saying this, he's not doing this. Let me be clear. Jesus is not taking the Pharisees aside and saying, hey, guys, listen, I know you guys are the righteous ones. You guys are the good ones. But those stinking sinners, you you, got to understand, I got to come for them, right? Because you're good. You're clean and you're, you're holy. You're pure. They're not, right? You get that, right? Okay, yeah. So that's why I'm spending time with them. He's not doing that. He, he's not affirming the Pharisees. He's playing along with their categories. They think they're righteous. They think they're healthy. They think they're well. And he is actually using this, this phrase to actually call them out in their own hypocrisy. We see the very proud, proud heart of the Pharisees, actually later on in Luke chapter 18, if you can flip, I think this is the last time I'm going to call you to flip Luke chapter 18. This is a very famous passage. We're going to be in verse nine. Luke 18, verse nine. Okay. Jesus is speaking. He told them, he, well, he told this parable to some who trusted in themselves. Notice that term that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you. I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector over here. 
I fast twice a week and I give tithes of all I get. Now, this is such a great passage I'd love to talk about, but you can flip back to chapter five. Jesus is just calling out this pervasive reality that wasn't in all Pharisees, but many of them, at least in this time, these Pharisees had this self-righteous mindset that they thought they were well. They thought they didn't need any help. They, they, they thought they weren't the sick ones. And, 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 and so what Jesus is trying to do is show that he is for those who know they don't have things together and populate his kingdom and his church with those kind of people. So the church is not made up of the righteous, but it's made up of repentant sinners. It's, it's not made up of those who think they're good, but those who know they're not. It's not those who are righteous, righteous enough to, to be accepted by God, but those who know they're not and have been accepted by God by faith in Christ. And as a result, Jesus's righteousness has covered them. That's the beauty of the gospel community. That's the beauty of God's kingdom. See, the paradox that is so hard to understand is that Jesus populates his kingdom and his church with the people that no one else would and the people who already know they don't have things together. It's the unlikely crew that you would never think of pursuing. That the those that society said are out of the bounds of salvation, they're too beyond reach. Those are the very people that Jesus pursues. It's crazy. Now, let's look at this one phrase quickly. What does Jesus say? What does he mean when he says that he is um, calling sinners to repent? This is the very end of verse 32 in chapter five. Again, that if, if you're just looking in, this is what we're at. But sinners to repentance. So he's not com- coming to call the righteous, but he's coming to call sinners. But, but, but what are they being called to? He's just not saying, come sinners. He's calling them to repent. Now, this is a very churchy word that if you've been around, you may have heard this word a lot, but many people don't understand what this word means. And we've already talked about this before, but it's really worth highlighting again. Let me do a quick word study on this word repentance or explain it. See, this word repentance is the word metanoel. Okay, it's two words together. It's a preposition meta and the word noel together. Now, together, they change each of those words. Noel is your perception, your understanding, your thinking. And meta, if you compound it with this verb, noel, um, what you're going to do is you're going to say, uh, uh, you're going to change, change your thinking. So this text, this word repentance literally means changing of your thinking, changing of your understanding of your very perception. And so when you say repent, you call someone to repent, you're not calling them to merely say, oh, I was wrong, or I'm sorry, I did something bad. I need to do better next time. When you call someone to repent, you're literally calling them to change the way they think about reality, to change the way that they think about themselves, about God, about others. You are calling them for a radical shift, a fundamental change, a revolution of the way they think about themselves. And fundamentally, you're confessing humbly, I'm wrong. I'm wrong about the way I think about that. I'm wrong the way I think about myself and about God. And, and you are asking God to transform your thinking. You're saying, God, I see the light now and I'm shifting my thinking. And if you change your thinking, you'll change your living. And so often in the church, we focus on the living and not the thinking. And if you change the thinking, the living will follow by God's grace. And so Jesus is after transforming the way they think their, their very hearts and out of the overflow of their heart, their life will speak. You may have heard of this before. And I know my people, and I know we have some guests visiting. So glad that you're with us. 
And I don't know where you're, what journey, where you're at with your journey with Christ, what you know of him, what your history is with him. But perhaps one day in the past, you repented. You said, Jesus, I trust you. I turn from my sin, I turn to you. But what this text calls us to is not a one-time event, but a continual reality. And so the question I ask for you is not, did you repent one time back when junior high at that camp? Or even last month, but are you repenting today? Are you changing your thinking today? Are you further confessing your need for him to transform you? Are you further rejecting your own lordship, your own control, your own mindset and embracing his lordship, his mindset, his thinking, his ways, his values? And so let me call to you uh, and share some observations that the, the old British preacher in the 1800s, Charles Spurgeon made about this text and about anybody who would want to go to the great physician. Let me read this to you. It's gonna be a little impersonal. I'm gonna look down, but this is so powerful. Charles Spurgeon makes these questions and he falls with these answers. Listen carefully if you can. What is his medicine, this great physician? He answers, it is his own blood. Unlike other physicians who give bitter potions to their patients, the great physician drank all the medicine himself. Second question, but you ask, what is his fee? He answers, he gives healing without money and without price. Who can access this medicine? He answers, anyone who trusts him. Christ presents a free and complete cure. You ask, what are his hours? And he answers, any hour and every hour by night or by day. But you will say, where can I find him? And he answers, just wherever you are sitting or standing right now, you can find him if you will but breathe this prayer. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. If you trust him with your soul, Jesus will cure you. Isn't that awesome? Friends, family, this is a great hope for us sinners that Christ Jesus is the great physician who drinks our spiritual sickness down to the very last drop. And because he absorbs our sickness and he takes our punishment, he is able to extend healing and a cure to all who trust in him. Hallelujah, what a savior. And so I need to wrap up. So I wanna just talk about how we should live now. Two quick responses. One is this, to seek after the sick like Jesus did. What Jesus has done to us, he now wants to do through us. And so as those who have received this great, cure for the soul, we ought to now seek others who are sick and introduce them to the great physician. But two ditches I wanna quickly warn you of, as you do this, one of the dangers, because we're not Jesus, is that we can compromise the gospel and compromise our very soul as we seek out the sickest in our society. We can sometimes subtly be more influenced by them than us influencing them. And, and, and sometimes we can just focus on immediate meeting physical immediate needs and neglecting eternal needs. So that's one ditch that I think a lot of us could be, need to be careful to fall into. Now, the other ditch is a ditch that I think a lot more of us can fall into. I don't think we purposely fall into this ditch, but this, this is a ditch that we can fall into just because we're so busy. We're so busy with life. We're so busy with all the things going on that we find ourselves in Christian bubbles. And so this ditch is that we may engage the lost or the or sinners in this world, the sick of the world, but we just kind of throw gospel grenades and we kind of check it off our list and we can kind of go home and do nothing. And, and, and for many of us, maybe we don't even do that. 
We don't share anything because we're so busy spending time with other Christians. And this is a very big mistake because Jesus came to seek after sinners and so should we. And, and so what, I, as I was looking at this verse, I was thinking verse 31 and 32 is very relevant for us, especially who have a lot of theological background and training. We've been given much knowledge. And one of the dangers of this passage that this passage is calling out is that some of you here, like myself, know this Bible pretty well. You've received a lot of great teaching over the years, but you're like a doctor who just spends time with other doctors. Instead of helping the sick, you're like those during this pandemic who only spend time with other doctors. And and you may tweet about other doctors and how they're not doing it right. And maybe you spend a lot of time reading the newest literature and how to help people and how new ventilator procedures and all this stuff, but you never spend time with the sick. This is a great danger we must avoid for Jesus Christ. Jesus came for sinners like ourselves. And we must, not be, we must be careful not to spend all our times, time with the well, but for those who are still sick. If you're committed to seeking out the sick, let me make one implication and one challenge. The implication is this, is that if you pursue the sinners of, in your sphere of your life, the sick, you are going to experience great heartache you will experience the depth of the gospel like you never known before. And you will see your inner Pharisee come out. All of us still have inner Pharisees. And if you really love those who are in the worst places in society, those who are farthest from God, you're going to often find yourself um, heartbroken, sometimes betrayed. And sometimes just thinking to yourself, man, I, you don't deserve this. You don't deserve this good news. I've done so much for you and everything I asked you to do, it's good advice. And you did the exact opposite. Now I have to pay you to get out of jail. Or I now need to help you in the ditch. You just dug for your own grave. And we can see this inner Pharisee, this, this idea that, man, I did this. I deserve this gospel. And what, what's going to happen is, is the gospel doesn't always propel you to love the lost. Sometimes I would think that if I just read the Bible enough, I'm going to just immediately love sinners. Uh, that doesn't always happen for me. Sometimes it does. But what I found is that the gospel may not propel you to love sinners automatically, but what it does is it sustains you as you love sinners, as they reject you, as they break your heart, as they make fun of you, as they don't listen to you. It sustains you to know, man, that's what I was like. While, I were, while we were still sinners, Christ died for me. And you're going to understand the sharing of his sufferings. You're going to understand what Jesus has to bear with us all the time because we're so stupid often. We run from him when we, we know that he's life. And the same thing's going to happen as we engage the sick of this world, the spiritually sick. They're going to reject us, even though they may think that what we're saying is true. They're going to keep going back to the same vomit of the world. And we're going to have to test ourselves to really know, do we really believe that God saved me out of grace and not the own work, my own work? So with that implication, share one challenge for you. During this age, this pandemic, this, there's unprecedented opportunity for the gospel. I want to challenge you to pick one person that you can pray for and you can ask God to open up doors for you to share the great hope of this physician, the very, the very cure for the greatest sickness of the world. I want to challenge you really today to think about that and ask God to bring someone to your mind, someone in your sphere. Maybe it's a neighbor, maybe it's a family member, someone you work with that God is priming their heart for you to share the good news. Pray for that. And here's the final, and I would say with that, please ask your DNA and your MC to help you do this well. 
help uh, get creative, ask the spirit to give you wisdom, how to loop in other people to maybe support you with gifts that you don't have yourself and we can do it together as a community. And let me end with this, the final point to rejoice, rejoice in this great physician. I want to end with those words. Let's rejoice in Jesus. Aren't you glad that Jesus came for sinners and came for the sickest like myself? Aren't you glad that this text, it doesn't say, Jesus said, I have not come for the sick, but I've come for the well. Where the well? Come here, people. Come here, attractive. Come here, pure. Come here, those who are born from the right lineage. Come here, those who got their act together. Come here, the good looking. No, 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 no. Jesus does the very opposite. He says, come here, all who are wearisome and burdened. Come here, all who are sick. Come here, who have no money. Come here. And he said that to me and you. And as he did it to me and you, let's share this great hope with others. Amen? Amen. All right. Thanks, church.